St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. How many of you have heard of that? Yeah, almost everybody in here. One of, if not the most well-known cancer research hospitals in the entire country. Now, how did it get its name? Disclaimer, I do not believe in venerating saints or praying to saints. I realize some of you come from that background, and that's fine. But the Bible says if you are in Jesus, like if you have trusted in Jesus, you have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guess what? You're a saint. Literally, a saint means a set-apart one, one who is made holy by Jesus. You are set apart by God for God. Now, with that said, why are they called St. Jude? Well, in the Catholic tradition, St. Jude is thought of as the patron saint of hopeless causes. Hopeless causes. And kids getting cancer seems like a pretty hopeless cause. And so they strive to step into the gap. They want to go into this, let's, let's, let's fight cancer. They will not rest, they will not stop until cancer is eradicated. And so they continue the research. And that is extremely admirable. You know, I, I remember watching a St. Jude advertisement. They're on TV all the time. I show this mom, and she says, Cole, Cole, my son, <laughs> he's my miracle child. I wasn't supposed to be able to have kids. We didn't have kids for so long. So how does my miracle child get cancer? 20 seconds into this ad, everyone's tearing up, everyone's crying. And that's the thing about hope. Hope can sometimes seem elusive fragile, fickle at best, but there is a more hopeless cause than cancer, death. There seems to be such a finality and a dark despair to death. Even the thought of it causes great anxiety in so many people. No amount of medical research or biological advancement in the world can overcome it. At best, our life is prolonged, and we just delay the inevitable. So unless Christ comes back in our lifetime, folks, death comes for us all. Wow, pastor, what a cheery Easter message. And that's the point. Folks, death is the epitome of hopelessness. Nothing more devastating and final unless death was to be defeated. And there is one who stepped into this, the most hopeless of all hopeless causes, and says, no, 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 not on my watch. I'm going to solve this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore life once and for all. His name is Jesus. So turn to Mark chapter 5 in your Bibles or on your phones if you have a Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, by the way, you should download one. Bible.com is a great one. And if you don't own a Bible, please come talk to me after the service. I'll be happy to give you a brand new free Bible. Uh, we would love to get you a Bible. All right, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now let me give you some historical context. 
synagogues back then and even today were local places of worship for Jewish people. And in a community where everyone knew everyone, where everybody knows your name, go ahead and hum the cheers theme song, you know you're thinking it. (laughs) The synagogue rulers were highly respected leaders. They were prominent members, pillars of society, high class, high status, hoity-toity types, okay? They would not be caught dead on their knees earnestly begging someone for help. Let alone, I mean, such groveling would be humiliating, let alone, especially towards someone of suspicion with a scandalous reputation of healing people on the Sabbath, of teaching people and gathering large crowds around him, of claiming to be God. By this time, the breach between Jesus and synagogue leaders had become irreparable. There is no love lost here. In fact, leading members of the synagogues actually conspired to kill him. But status and prestige were not considerations for Jairus at this moment. He didn't secretly seek an audience with Jesus in the dead of night, having a a private audience with him so no one would notice like Nicodemus does in John chapter 3. No, no. Look what happens. Jairus falls before Jesus in broad daylight in front of a massive crowd. So word would quickly get out that this just happened. Rumors would spread. Who cares? He could care less about accolades or opinions or being liked or being outcast. He just wanted his little girl healed. And as a dad of daughters, how many of you are dad of daughters? Listen, as as a dad of daughters, I get this. There is no length I won't go to for my little girls. No amount of money, no amount of effort. If they're in trouble, if they were nearing death, I, I get it. His girl is staring death in the face. She's on her last leg. She's at death's door. Death has its grip on her, dragging her down into the abyss. He is desperate. She is a hopeless cause. Twelve years old, on the cusp of womanhood, what was Jairus thinking? How can my precious girl be facing the end of her life when she's supposed to have her whole life in front of her? She's my little girl. She's my only daughter, my miracle child. So how does my miracle child get a life-threatening illness? So we try to blame God for death. But do you realize that death is actually what we chose? It's true. We chose death. Death is the natural result of our rebellion against God, which is what we call sin. We rejected the author of life and his glory in exchange for our own. So sin is a worship issue, folks. Self is more worthy of my affection than the God who created me. So rejecting the author of life naturally means choosing what is opposite of life, which is death. You know, when I do a a funeral, often I will say, it's okay to be angry at death. It's okay to despise death. I hate death. We should get angry at death. Because, listen, death was not a part of God's 
design. It was not part of his created order. It's a result of the fallout from rejecting God, which we have all done. So part of the brokenness in our world is because of us, because of our sin. But look at the text again. Notice there's a measure of faith here. Jairus is saying, Jesus, my daughter is on the brink of death. But if you lay your hands on her, if you touch her, she will be healed and she will live. There's faith here. And in the Christian life, faith has a central role. Not amount of faith, not quantity of faith, like you have to have this many faith units to be saved. Like, I don't know, my faith is down here, but to get up, you know, to, to really please God and have his approval, you got to have your faith up here. No, no, it's not about amount of faith or quantity of faith. It's not even the substance of faith itself. It's not faith in life blessings and the fruits of life. It's the object of our faith that brings life, and his name is Jesus. Jairus, listen, Jairus likely, he's a prominent member of society. He likely had a good amount of money. Like, he was pretty well off. So I can just imagine he tried everything. He went to the best doctors, the best treatments, medicines, procedures. He tried everything, and nothing worked. Nothing brought life. But then Jesus. It's similar to the lady we see in the next passage. Look at verses 25 through 34. You have this woman who has bleeding. Menstrual bleeding for 12 years. Now, in Jewish culture back then, if you had perpetual bleeding, you were declared unclean. You were literally an outcast from society. So this is a lonely, lonesome, troubled woman. And just like Jairus, she tried, the text actually says she tried everything. She spent all of her money. She went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and nothing worked, nothing brought life. But then Jesus, she heard about this Jesus who heals, who brings life. Wait, and and Jesus is coming to our hometown? He's coming here now? So this great crowd, uh, the text says throngs around Jesus, is surrounding Jesus. And she's just thinking, if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. In fact, not even just him. If I could just touch the edge of his garment, the hem, the corner of the outer cloak, if I could just reach through. And so she's, she's, she's thinking this and reaching through. You know, I, when, when I was younger, I remember uh, our family would go to a professional sports game. I grew up in Colorado, so like a Denver Broncos game or a Denver Nuggets. And, and uh, we'd go to the game, and my dad would want to leave halfway through the fourth quarter. <laughs> Like when there's still five, six minutes left. And I'm like, what? Why? I don't get it. But last year we went to an NBA game. Now I get it. <laughs> when you wait till the last minute, you, you wait till the game is over. There were thousands of people trying to get down one staircase. And so we're like literally moving this slow. I like, I like my personal space. Like give me my bubble. Don't get in my bubble. There is no bubble in a crowd like that. So I can imagine they are all just surrounding Jesus, thousands of people. And so she reaches through, just please, can I get you through? Can I get through? Please just let me touch him. Just let me. And she reaches out and just grabs the corner of his, of his robe. And Jesus stops, says, who touched me? I can imagine the disciples are like, 
who touched you? Everybody, Jesus. <laughs> who didn't touch you? No, no. Who touched me? Power went out for me. Who touched me? Now, Jesus knows the answer to that question, but in that moment, he wants to fish out this woman. And so she comes before him, and she kneels, gets on her feet, weeping, no doubt. And she confesses, I, I did. And she tells him everything. And Jesus, no doubt with a smile, stoops down. He says, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go and be well. Mm. She falls down before Jesus. Jairus falls down before Jesus. Jairus and this unnamed woman both come to Jesus in humility, born out of desperation, born of faith. You know, there are different kinds of death. Physical death, sure. But there is a death that is more insidious, more diabolical, more sinister, and it's spiritual death. And folks, death has its grasp around you. And I think you know it. You've tried everything to be freed from its grip. You've tried everything in this life that promises life. Everything in this world that promises life. Relationships. Oh, they'll make me happy. My significant other, he or she will make me happy. Success. Popularity. Possessions. Money. Status. Shall I go on? And nothing has worked Nothing's brought life. And every time you try it, you just get mired deeper and deeper into the pit, and you are desperate. But then Jesus. Look at verse 23. The word that Jairus is use, uses here for get well, if you touch her, she'll get well, also means be saved, which is pretty significant because he's saying, Jesus, if you just touch my little girl, she will be saved. She'll be healed. She'll be saved. She will live. Have you fallen at the feet of Jesus, begging him for salvation? Jesus, if you touch me, I will be saved. Have you implored Jesus for life? If you touch me, Jesus, I will be saved. I will live. Now, why is this important? Well, look at verse 24. And he, Jesus, went with him. Jairus is saying, please, please come with me. And Jesus went with him. Jesus never denies the appeal for life. Never. He's the creator. He's the giver and sustainer of life. It's in his nature. He cannot deny someone who is crying out to him for salvation, someone who is crying out to him because to do so would, de would deny saving someone and go against his very nature. He is the savior. He saves. It's literally his name. Yeshua means salvation. So through Jesus, you can have new life now. Now look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to, the, to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Your daughter is dead. Stop bothering the teacher you know, the teacher only has time for those who are, you know, alive. 
man, that's pretty cold. Jairus just found out his daughter died. That is callous. If, if, I, if one of my daughters died and someone came up and said something like that, ooh, it would take everything within me not to, hmm. See, this woman, this unnamed woman, delays Jesus. I can imagine Jairus is like, okay, okay, yes, you're healing her. That's, that's all fine and good, but please, we got to go. We got to go. No, Jesus, come on. We got to go to my daughter. No, don't talk to this woman. Oh, come on. Jesus is delayed by this woman on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And now what was of great benefit to her is of great detriment to him. His little girl is gone. Hope is lost. Hopeless cause. But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. There's something so reassuring, so calming when Jesus says, don't fear, just believe. In fact, the connotation, if you look at Greek, uh, the New Testament was originally written in, the, in Greek. If you look in the Greek, it literally is saying, stop fearing, keep believing. Stop fearing, keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Yes, some of you just got the journey song stuck in your head. It's going to be playing in your head throughout Easter like karaoke. You're welcome. Keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Believe what? She died, Jesus. Game over. Keep believing in me as you had when you approached me. See, faith is not some intellectual assent. Faith is not mentally agreeing with theologically a set of beliefs. It's not even believing just, you know, I believe all the things in the Bible happened. Faith is not intellectual assent. What is faith? By faith, you place your life in his hands and you go all in on Jesus. I'm cashing all my chips. Jesus, I am all in on you. Nothing else in this life. It's about you. So faith is belief that Jesus gives resurrection life. Don't fear. Keep on believing. Death doesn't scare Jesus. He's the Lord of life. Now what's going on in Jairus' mind at this moment? Is anxiety bubbling up? What is he thinking? Despair? Despondency? I mean, his little girl just died. Or does he take Jesus at his word and find inexplicable peace amid turmoil? Jairus already believed the difficult. Could he now believe the impossible? Look at verse 38. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Now, some scholars believe that these people weeping and wailing were professional mourners, which they had back then. So these were people hired to publicly grieve the loss of loved ones. And the reason we think that, if you look at Matthew 9.23 in, in this parallel account, same story, it says that there were people playing the flute right after this lady, this girl dies. So here you have some flute players, you have some others who are loudly wailing these haunting laments, they're tearing their clothes. They're pulling their hair. They would clap their hands. They're causing a ruckus. They are making a commotion as they loudly and probably superficially grieve. 
And I love what Jesus says. He's like, stop it. Why are you making such a racket? Why all this weeping? The kid isn't dead. She's napping. Now, Jesus is not being dismissive. He's not being cruel. He's not mocking their pain. He also does not understand this tragic situation. Jesus certainly is not suggesting that she actually is literally asleep, that she's just comatose, as if she just needs resuscitation. No, folks, she didn't need resuscitation. She needed resurrection. I mean, she dead. She's like dead, dead. But he sees death for what it is. Death isn't final. Death is not permanent. And if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, death is temporary. And so they laugh at him. They ridicule him. They sneer at him in derision. I mean, you probably would too. If a loved one just died and some stranger comes up to you and says, oh, don't worry, she's not actually dead. She's just taking a nap. These mourners can laugh at Jesus, but in Christ, death does not have the last laugh. And when you view death like this, People will think you're crazy. Our world will not understand. But with Jesus, we don't look at death the same. Death is not the end. Now, is that a cliche? Maybe. But it's true. Death is not the end. For Christians, death is a passage to eternal joy. Now, look at verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum which is Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. So Aramaic, which, which was the common language that they spoke back then, that's what Jesus would have spoken. In Aramaic, he says, Talitha kum, Talitha. Literally, word for word, means little lamb. Some of you with your kids, you might have like little pet nicknames like little lamb, sweetheart. Our, our little girls, like if you see me out in the comments after the services, and, and if my girls rush toward me, I'm going to be like, sweet girls. Oh, sweet girls. Or when I come home from work, they hug me around the legs. Oh, hi, sweet girl. How are you doing? That's my little nickname for them, sweet girl. Jesus grabs this girl by the hand, takes her hand, and with this affectionate tone, little girl, little lamb, sweetheart, sweet girl, arise. Talitha, kum. Kum, in Aramaic, means arise. Those who sleep, arise. They wake up. They get up. Now, is he telling her to wake up and get out of bed? Or is he telling her to awaken from the slumber of death and rise to new life? Yes. He tells her to arise, and look what it says. The text says, immediately she got up. Immediately. Jesus proves himself stronger than death. With a single word, Jesus overcomes death. With a single word, he reanimates her dead flesh and brings her back to life. With a single word, Jesus commands life. With a single word, he has authority over death. Death quivers before Jesus. 
He speaks and this girl is transferred from the, the dominion of the deceased to the land of the living, from fatality to freedom, from expiration to exuberance. That's what happens when Jesus touches you. And they were overcome with amazement, it says. This word for amazement in the Greek is ecstasis. Now, what English word do you think comes from ecstasis? Ecstatic, ecstasy. Quite literally, they were astonished with astonishment. You think? They just saw their little girl who was dead as a doornail rise to life. That doesn't happen every day. You know, people talk about having a come-to-Jesus meeting. If someone says, we need to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, look out, someone's in trouble. This is a come-to-Jesus moment. This is a come-to-life moment. Jesus is given a come-to-life moment because that's what happens when you come to Jesus. You come to life. So let's talk about your come-to-life moment. We saw Brittany's. What about yours? At Easter, and like I said, every day as Christians, we celebrate the fact that Jesus conquered death. He died on the cross, yes, But what makes that good news, which we call the gospel, is that Jesus did not stay dead. He's risen. He has overcome death and brings new life to those who trust in him. So it's faith in his death and faith in his resurrection for us. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm risen. Be risen with me. Come to life in me. So three ways you come to life in Jesus. Number one. New life today. New life today. In Jesus, you have a new lease on life. Now, things will not necessarily get all peachy, peaches and cream. It's not like you're not going to suffer anymore and you'll be healed of all diseases forever. That's not necessarily true. In fact, in the Christian life, you will suffer. If Jesus died and he suffered what, what servant's greater than his master? Suffering is part of the Christian life. We're not guaranteed a suffering-free life when Jesus touches you. Your circumstances may not change. But you know what does change? Your vision. Your perspective. Your outlook. The way you look at people. You know what else changes? Your heart. See, the heart is the processing center for life. When you take... Uh, clothes or items to be donated at Goodwill, they go through a processing center or a processing room in the facility. So you have, you know, the volunteers, the workers, and they take the pants and they put them in this box and take shirts, put them in here, jackets put here, shoes put here. They're sorting everything, reorganizing everything. They are processing things as they come. And the heart is the processing center for life. So it's how we look at life. It's how we process all the things in Life, Jesus changes your heart, and so he changes how you process life. Things in life are sorted. They're rearranged properly. You have new values under Jesus. You have new priorities under Jesus. You have new affections through Jesus. Jesus is at the top, and everything else falls into place. You love God and you love people in a way that you did not think possible. And quite frankly, in a way that before Jesus was impossible. New heart, new hope. 
But Jesus does not just give us a new lease on life. Jesus gives new life. Did you hear Brittany's story? Did you catch that? She is able to forgive because she's realized she is forgiven. She, she can overcome addictions because she found the one who is more fulfilling. She no longer is trying to find love in all the wrong places because she was found by the one who is defined by love. So we don't just get a new lease on life. In Jesus, you have new life. Someone say hallelujah. hallelujah. Now, resurrection insinuates death. You cannot resurrect what isn't dead. And spiritually speaking, in Ephesians 2, it says that we are dead. Dead, dead. We're not just broken people in need of rehab. We're dead. We have as much love for God and for others as a corpse does for anything. Corpses can't love people, can't love anything. They're dead. It's a corpse. But though inside we are dead, there's a Greek word for transformation, and it's the word metamorpho. What word do you think comes from metamorpho? Metamorphosis. So I think of this word, this transformation, metamorphosis, and I think of, you know, a caterpillar. This disgusting, fat little worm that's just like, you know, in the mud, in the, mud, in the dirt. I don't, I don't want to touch a caterpillar. Maybe some of you do. You're weird. But, you know, uh, no, you know most people don't want to, oh, oh, a caterpillar, look, look. But you go to the zoo, you go to the butterfly pavilion, what are you doing? Land on me. Land on me, and these butterflies just, you know, and you're like, it's a butterfly. You wouldn't do that with a caterpillar because a butterfly is so much more glorious. Now, you realize what's happening in the chrysalis, in the cocoon? The, The caterpillar literally biologically breaks down. Like its DNA decomposes and then recomposes into something completely different. If you didn't know about that process, you would never look at a caterpillar and go, oh, that'll turn into a butterfly one day. It's completely different. And that's the point. We are completely different. It's a change of nature of something into something completely different. Christians, we are not rehabilitated. We are not re-educated. We are recreated. There's a transformation in resurrection. So, don't assume that someone is saved because they attend church. Don't assume that someone is saved because they were dunked under some water years ago. Don't assume someone is saved because they said some words. Don't assume someone is saved because they, they take the label of Christian, they call themselves a Christian. None of that saves you. None of that brings salvation. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's Jesus and nothing else. It's faith in him, not in what we do. But when Jesus touches someone by faith, they change. You can't stay the same. Brittany has changed. She has become, you know, a beautiful butterfly. (laughs) She's metamorphosized. She's transformed because that's what Jesus does. He transforms. Jesus resurrects. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Those who are in Jesus are remade. You are a new creation in Christ. Jesus transforms. Jesus resurrects. Jesus makes new. So new life today. Number two, resurrection life someday. 
One day, we will physically rise in new bodies to a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21 talks about this. The old things of life were tainted. That were tainted by sin and decay will be gone. Check this out. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen, listen to this. This is so good, Christians. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God will be with us. He will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more tears, no mourning, no wailers, no more pain, no more separation, no darkness, no more death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? For the power of death is uh, 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 sin, and the sting of sin is the law, but praise be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So new life today. Resurrection life someday and oh, this is so good. Those of you who have trusted in Jesus, eternal life, how long? Forever. Forever. You know, this new life in Jesus, it never ends. It never ends. It starts today and continues forever. This world is temporary ha happiness with eternal heartache. But life in Christ is temporary heartache, but eternal happiness. And so here's the, whole, here's the whole point this morning, folks. As Jesus rose to life, he brings you new life. New life today, resurrection life someday, and eternal life forever. Come to life in Jesus.